Hey, it's Adam Schefter, host of the Adam Schefter Podcast. Wake up to the best story you'll hear all day, 20 minutes a day, five days a week, where you get an inside look at the most interesting stories at ESPN as told by the top reporters and insiders on the planet. The breaking news of SportsCenter with the deep dive storytelling of 30 for 30. Today's episode was one I thought our listeners would especially enjoy. Please listen and subscribe to ESPN Daily wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Jason Garrett is done. And we talk about it every single year about how, you know, hey, he's on the hot seat. Well, this thing right now, dude, he, he, he ought to be getting boxes to his house. It happens every year when the NFL season winds down. Coaches on losing teams across the league are feeling the heat. As the ritual known as Black Monday approaches, we break down which seats are the warmest and who might be next in line for the biggest jobs in the NFL. I'm Mina Kimes. It's Friday, December 20th. This is ESPN Daily, presented by Indeed. Dan, how are you doing? I'm good, Mina. It's week 16. Dan Graziano is an NFL insider for ESPN. Well, you know, with week 16 for some teams, uh, it's very exciting. We're looking towards the playoffs. With other teams and other fan bases, it's hot seat season. Dan, can you explain to us how you know when a coach is on the hot seat? Usually it's either there's some sort of turmoil, like the locker room is is losing its mind or there's like some kind of internal tension between the coach and the front office, or it's a coach that's been there a while and kind of is on his second or third chance. And he's still like limping toward five and 11. And, you know, I think that those are pretty much the kind of the obvious signs. And then I think you just sort of have to start poking around and ask the people in charge. Do you think you'll make a change here? And you can find out, Yes, you can find out no sometimes. You know, Detroit Lions come out and say they're not firing Matt Patricia. Detroit Lions owner Martha Firestone Ford announced today that head coach Matt Patricia and GM Bob Quinn will be back next season. It can get to the point where it at least becomes an obvious, worthwhile question to ask. How much does sort of longevity matter towards, you know, determining whether a coach is really on the hot seat? Do Coaches who have only been there a year, like a Zach Taylor in Cincinnati, tend to get more leeway? In general, yeah. I, don't, I think it's pretty unusual for a team to go after one year. I mean, Arizona last year did it because they were just kind of changing their whole plan, right? Like, yeah, nothing against you, Steve Wilkes, but we are going to draft this quarterback, Kyler Murray. We're going to pair him with a coach we think he can win with. We're just going to pretend the year 2018 never happened and start from scratch in 2019 with new coach and quarterback, even though we just did that so it's pretty unusual but yeah i think like look at zach taylor in cincinnati he succeeds a guy that was there for 16 years in marvin lewis so when zach taylor gets that job he knows he's going to a place where they're likely to be patient freddie kitchens gets a job in cleveland he knows that's a place where historically they have not been patient but yeah i think usually you have to give a guy a couple couple or three years the flip side as everybody always points out is the pittsburgh steelers We've only had three different coaches in the last 50 years and have won six Super Bowls. You know, I think everybody would like it to be like that, but not everybody has that kind of patience or success. Well, let's talk about Freddie Kitchens. I think going into this season, the Browns had probably 
greater expectations than most of the teams we're talking about. By any measure, it's been a disappointment. A lot of the pundits out there said they were going to be in the Super Bowl. That was the team. Freddie Kitchens, you know, a lot of people have talked about him and his job and that he had to win a couple of these games going down the stretch. And this was a big loss. Dan, you mentioned that in the past they've gone through coaches quickly in Cleveland. How do you think that perception affects the decision-making of the Browns? They don't want to be a team that constantly changes coaches and fires coaches. But that doesn't mean they won't be. Because, I mean, you can convince yourself that, oh, I can't believe we're doing this again, but it's the right thing because Freddie Kitchens was obviously the wrong decision. Why would we compound that? by bringing him back for another year when, when he's shown us that he can't handle it. And again, I'm, I'm, this is me imagining an internal monologue of Jimmy Haslam's, but if we have a guy that we definitely don't think is the guy, then we have to move on and try and find someone who is. Dan, you talked about how if it's only been a year, sometimes a team will say, yeah, we, let's give this guy a chance to turn things around. But it had been a couple of years in Detroit with Matt Patricia. Why do you think that team came out before Black Monday and said, we're going to hang on to him, despite the fact that he's won uh, in two seasons as many games as Jim Caldwell won in a single season before he was fired in Detroit? I think that the key is Bob Quinn, the GM, right? He comes from New England. He gets rid of Caldwell. He goes and picks out Patricia, who he knows from New England, and, the, and he has sold ownership on we can build this thing long term. Here's what Martha Firestone Ford said about her decision to bring back uh, both former Patriots. Quote, we expect to be a playoff contender. We expect to play meaningful games in December, as she's referring to next season when she brings him back. Whatever he's told them about here are signs that it can work, they've bought. Whether they're correct or not, I think, you know, the, the former New England crew that's running the Detroit Lions has convinced Detroit Lions ownership Here's why this can work here. We're sorry it hasn't worked right away, but two years isn't long enough. Give us another chance and and we'll see. How much does the GM matter when we're looking at these teams and trying to evaluate whether or not they're going to move on from their head coach? Well, it matters a lot and it can matter in a couple of different ways. One, how tied together are they? Did the GM hire the coach? Right now, when when, uh, Quinn goes to Detroit, Caldwell's already there. You figure, well, Caldwell's not going to last because Quinn's going to want to bring in his own guy. And lo and behold, that happened. So if you are the guy that the GM hired, that might help you. If you are the guy that the GM hired, but it's going poorly, and you're the first guy the GM hired, then recent history has shown us that you are the one in trouble and the GM is not. There are coaches out there that will tell you that the GM sits in the owner's box. He talks to the owner all game. He's the voice he hears while the coaches are down there on the field losing and it, it's pretty easy for the GM to kind of position himself as like, hey, this isn't my fault. Let's make a change and try it another way. I do think there are situations, though, you see more and more around the league where it goes in the other direction, where the coach kind of picks the GM. In San Francisco, John Lynch came because Kyle Shanahan wanted him. In Buffalo, Brandon Bean came because Sean McDermott wanted him. So I like that formula teams are using now where they get the coach first. and The coach brings in somebody he knows he can believe in. They understand the salary cap in the same way and can do all that administrative stuff together. I think that's that's a formula that looks like it's working in a few spots. So, Dan, in sort of walking us through the red flags for coaches, one of the things you mentioned is sometimes you'll have a coach who's fairly successful, but perhaps 
has grown stagnant. And when you said that, the first name that came to mind for me was Jason Garrett in Dallas, a team that could very well win the division. But do you think even if they do that, they might still end up splitting with their head coach? Now, that gets tricky for a couple reasons. One, you're behind, right? If he wins a division and let's say he wins his first playoff game and he still has to do more than that, you end up letting go of your coach in the middle of January and some teams have already hired new coaches and maybe you didn't get a chance to get at the guy you wanted. But I think in the case of Dallas, you have a coach that's been there a long time and the expectations have been higher than what he's achieved. So I really think that it's true what we've been saying all year about Garrett, which is he's got to make a playoff run to have a chance to keep his job. What did you say? I really didn't hear you. What do you need to see from Jason to bring him back in 2020? As your head I, really, coach? I really didn't hear you. <laughs> I've got a damn drill going on back over there. Next question. <laughs> the storm cloud hanging over Jason Garrett, that's not new. That's really been hanging over him for, if not a couple of seasons, at least at the beginning of this one. How do you think it affects a team when everyone knows that a coach is really coaching for his job? It can get a team down. It depends how they feel about the coach. I was covering the Giants at the end of the Tom Coughlin era. You know, he was there 12 years. And they felt like by the time he was done, the locker room felt like disappointed in itself for not being able to save him. So that can happen. And I think there are opposite situations where, where players are sick of the coach and they don't, they don't mind that he's gone. I, I just don't think it like if you're in a playoff race. Like if you're, if you're the Dallas Cowboys, you're spending too much time sitting there thinking – oh, well, we really need to win this or else Jason's gone. Like, like you're trying to win it so you can go to playoffs and, and you know, yeah. make some extra money and, and, get a, and, and maybe try and get a Super Bowl ring. But I think toward the end of the season, when, when all is lost, when you're not in contention, you see a lot of teams shut it down. Like the way Carolina is performing right now is an example. Like they're just they're not 100% up for it. And I think that can happen and when there's a coaching situation. It can show up, but it can also go the other way. The Atlanta Falcons playing very, very hard for Dan Quinn. The Falcons knock the 49ers off the top of the NFC with a seven-point win, 29-22, the final. At the end, game on the line. Those are uh, the moments as a coach that you totally live for. It makes you feel most alive. It was awesome. Dan, it's funny you mentioned Quinn because I've been thinking that watching him over the last couple of weeks. He's got us back against the wall. And, and I wonder, do you think that changes his willingness to take risks and be aggressive? It shouldn't, and I don't think for most guys it does. I remember this is a long time telling me when I, a long time ago when I used to when I, when I covered baseball. I covered the Yankees, and Brian Cashman was the GM even way back then. He's been there forever. There was a season where he was in a contract year, and I remember talking to him and asking him, "Does this change your perspective?" Right? Like, and he said, "Look, I have a job. Like, they're still paying me to do this job, which is BGM of the Yankees." And so if I don't do that well, then who's going to hire me? And I think when, when coaches, when anyone finds themselves in a difficult situation like that, that's a pretty good way to handle it. Coming up, how much head coach turnover will we see this year? The Monday after the final game of the regular season we call Black Monday because it's when a lot of these coaches get fired. On Black Monday last year, six coaches were fired. Do you think we could see a a similar bloodbath this time, Dan? You do start to run a little bit 
thin, right? If Detroit's not going to make a move, if the Jets aren't going to make a move, and let's say for the sake of argument, Cleveland's not going to make a move, and let's say for the sake of argument, Dan Quinn's going to save his job in Atlanta, it gets hard to get to six from there, right? Like if you just, like just, these are just situations we're watching, right? Giants, Jacksonville, Carolina, and Washington are already open. Yeah, that's only four. And I mean, I don't think you're going to see too much more than that. Now, there's always a surprise. That's the other thing everybody says to you this time of year. Well, there's always a surprise. And one of my editors asked me yesterday, well, who do you think the surprise will be? And I said, if I knew that, it wouldn't be a surprise. But if we believe the Jets and the Lions, and if we think the Browns aren't going to move on from Freddie Kitchens, it could be a little bit of a lighter turnover year at head coach. What is it like for you? When do you start hearing murmurs that uh, uh, someone is going to get let go? It's weeks out that you start hearing those murmurs, kind of like we've been talking about, right? You kind of try and figure out what the situations are that you need to keep track of. From what I do, if I didn't start calling sources on this until Saturday, Sunday of week 17, Monday, Monday after week 17, no one called me back. So I've got to know already and have groundwork laid like, hey, if you hear something on this situation, can you keep me posted? If, uh, if you've done it right, and you've done the advance work, you can be in a position to know what's going on. And maybe, you know, if you're lucky, be the first to break one. You told us what these days are like for you. What are they like for the people inside these organizations? Because obviously the shock waves go far beyond any one coach. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the other thing you check in with here is, is people you know on staffs. You know, hey, you're doing all right. I mean, like if the head coach gets fired, they don't announce that the offensive line coach got fired, or the quarterbacks coach got fired, or the, or the defensive backs coach got fired. But but in a lot of cases, that may be someone you have a relationship with. That's an instance where, yes, I mean, sometimes those guys can give you information, but you know, in the business of making sure that you build sources who trust you, that's a day to kind of reach out and say, hey, I'm not looking for anything. I just want to make sure you're all right. I remember after Coughlin got fired, Pat Flaherty had been his offensive line coach the whole 12 years. And I talked to Pat the following year. He was in San Francisco with Chip Kelly. He said, man, I had 12 years in one place. Like, I got to raise my kids. and They went, they went all the way through school in one place. Like, in my business, that is unheard of. So he was really appreciative of that. Most of the time, it's opposite. And I think each time, they have to wonder whether they're going to get kept. They are in limbo a lot of the time because their contracts are still running and they're waiting to see who the head coach is. Do you think going into Monday, many of these teams already have an idea as to who they want to target for the coach's replacement? Yes. On Monday, Monday night, you'll see reports of permission slips going in. So-and-so team has requested permission to interview the offensive coordinator of the of the Indianapolis Colts, the defensive coordinator of the San Francisco 49ers, etc. So Every owner who's thinking about a change, even owners that aren't thinking about changes, most of them keep files of, you know, coaching prospects that they like and are interested in for when the day inevitably comes that they'll need it. Last year, the hot trend in hiring head coaches was uh, anyone who has ever had a conversation with Sean McVay. Uh, somehow, I, I, you and I didn't get calls. <laughs> Do you think that's going to happen again this year? I mean, you mentioned Salah. It seems like actually we're hearing some defensive names. Dennis Allen, the coordinator in New Orleans. Ron Rivera, who was fired. Is it likely maybe that we'll see a a different trend in 2020? 
it's possible because you do hear a lot of defensive names. But, hmm. you know, I feel like I write the same column every year around this time, which is you should not be looking for do we want an offensive guy or a defensive guy? You should be looking for do we want a leader? You know, once upon a time, the Baltimore Ravens hired the special teams coordinator from the Philadelphia Eagles, John Harbaugh. He's still the coach. And not only is he still the coach, but he's winning games in a different way than he ever won them before because he has the ability to run the building and, and, and he can establish the vision and be the leader and be the delegator that makes it all work. And I think that gets lost a lot of the time when people start to talk about, do we want an offensive guy? Do we want a defensive guy? Do we want a young guy? Do we want a guy who's done it before? You need to have somebody who has that leadership ability inside of them. And when you hit on that, that's when you have gold. Dan, in all of your years covering the coaching carousel and Black Monday, how has it changed? What is different now from, say, a decade ago? Nothing. I mean, like, really, like, it's the same stuff, right? Like, it's like, like, who are the coordinators? Do we need to make a move because the fans are upset or we're just bored with this guy or, like, he's offense and we need defense? He's young and we need old. He's a player's coach and we need a... Uh, uh, a tail kicker, you know, like, I, I don't know. Like, it, it's just, I think teams are doing it the same way. It varies year to year in terms of the specifics, but in terms of the process, no, I, I think it's, I don't think it's evolved. I think that's probably kind of a story that, that's probably worth pursuing and writing is, is that, that teams are still doing it the same way they did 10 years ago and, and maybe longer. Thanks, Dan. All right, Mina, thanks. Coming up, what James Wiseman's decision means for the future of college basketball. Here's another story I want you to know. Not too long ago, we told you about James Wiseman, the freshman basketball player at Memphis who was suspended after the NCAA found he had received improper financial benefits from the man who had become his college coach. Penny Hardaway. It's frankly right in the NCAA's wheelhouse. It's just frustrating because it's a rule that most people, most fair-minded people don't agree with. It's just an unusual situation to have uh, a coach that coached uh, a prospect when he was in high school ultimately becoming his college coach. That, That doesn't happen very often, so the circumstances are somewhat unique. Initially, Memphis fought back. But Wiseman eventually decided to accept his 12-game suspension, and he sat out for a few games. Well, yesterday, he made another decision and informed the world via Instagram that he was planning to leave college altogether and prepare for the 2020 NBA draft. James Wiseman should be in the NBA right now making millions of dollars. And so then it comes down to making a proper business decision of what is the risk reward of coming back to Memphis at this time? And for me, this is an indictment once again on the one and done rule that the NBA put in. Making this choice, Wiseman would seem to be a pioneer, except he's not alone. He's actually part of a clear and massive trend. Just take a look at his class. According to ESPN's latest mock draft, Wiseman is projected to go third overall. The number one pick, LaMelo Ball, is playing professionally in Australia. The number five pick, RJ Hampton, is playing professionally in New Zealand. And the number four pick, Cole Anthony, is a freshman at North Carolina. But after he injured his knee, there's been speculation that he might sit out the rest of the season to prepare for the draft. And this is only the beginning at least until the NBA inevitably lowers the age limit for the draft. 
In the meantime, there's no way to predict how this will play out for Wiseman, or Memphis for that matter. He probably would have grown his profile had he stayed in school, but now he can start making money and protect his body as best he can. And while Memphis surely wishes he had stuck around, they've also won all seven games he sat out, even beating a ranked Tennessee team. The only thing we can say with any certainty is that the biggest loser in all of this is the NCAA, which will no longer get to benefit from Wiseman's services come March. They might have won the battle against him in Memphis, but as time goes on, it's obvious they're losing the war. I'm Ina Kimes, and this has been ESPN Daily. Our show is produced by Michael Baltiera, Troy Farkas, Alexander Hyacinth, Sarah Kazadi, Jason Costura, Mike Johns, Steve Martin, Ryan Antel, David Sorosi, Andy Tennant, Eve Tro, Chris Tuminello, and Aaron Vale. I'll talk to you Monday. <laughs> <laughs>